Blog Talk Radio. Hello. Good afternoon, Dr. Tom. How are you? This is Patrick D. McCoy, the African-American voice of classical music. How are you? I'm fantastic. Thank you so much for joining us today for this very special edition of the Maestro Series. And Dr. Thomas, I just want to congratulate you on your wonderful career in choral music. Well, that's so kind. Thank you, Patrick. Thank you so much. Dr. Thomas, when I was in college, one of the very first pieces I uh Saying of yours was keep your lamps. What was the inspiration behind that particular piece? A lot of choirs sing that number. Yeah, they do. Uh, it's. Um, I wish I could do another arrangement just like it because it's. It seems to never die. It still is selling like incredible. Um, the inspiration came quite early. I was doing a PBS uh, pilot. That, that I did in Wichita, Kansas, and I was looking at slave songs. And this was, you know, in the very early 70s. And I came across Keep Your Lamps, and I thought, Keep Your Lamps Trimmed and Burning. I came across that, that idea. And it stayed with me until I got to the University of Illinois, and I was conducting a group called the University of Illinois Black Chorus. It's about 200 singers there. And that's when I did the arrangement and uh, never published it, and then when I got to Austin, Texas, uh, I was teaching at the University of Texas at Austin and took my Methodist class to a reading session. And when I was leaving, Don Henshaw said to me, he said, thank you for bringing the students. I said, well, you're welcome because they need to learn how to select music. And he said, by some chance, do you have a piece of music that you've arranged or written? And I said, oh, yeah, I do. I have this one piece, and I'm going to do a session for a national MNC in two weeks. And he said, give it to me, and in eight days he had it in print. So that's Keep Your Lamps. Wow, that's a magnificent story. Now tell me, Dr. Thomas, you're busy conducting choirs all across the globe. Tell me about the Pratt Choral Festival that the Tallahassee Community Chorus is involved with. Uh, this festival will uh, be about a total of uh, 270 or so singers, and it will be with the National Proc Philharmonic Orchestra. Uh, this is a part of uh, a series. Um, if you've ever been to London, you know you've heard about the London proms that go mm-hmm. on all summer. Well, uh, Prague also has a set of proms, and so this will be a, a, um, a part of the prom series that goes, you know, throughout the summer. Uh, it'll be in the Smetna Hall in Prague, which is one of the old halls. Um, and, of course, named after the famous uh, Czech composer, uh, Schmetna. But it's a beautiful hall, and I'm looking forward to the orchestra. The community chorus will be part of the singers. I'm not taking that. The community chorus uh, membership is about 250. Um, and so not 250 are going this summer. But it will be a combined choir of choirs from all over, uh, from uh, I, uh, Idaho, uh to um, Missouri, um, to uh, New Hampshire. There are a whole group of them coming together to sing from the Soviet Union, from Siberia, and Czech. So I'll put all those forces together, and um, 
in the second half of the concert, I will conduct the Mozart Requiem. In the first half of the concert, my good friend Anton Armstrong will conduct uh, the, with a reduced um, orchestration of just harp, uh, percussion, and organ, uh, the Chichester Psalms. And that will be wow. the concert for that evening. That's such a diverse gathering of voices. And that's the first thing I noticed that when I saw the poster, I saw that Dr. Anton Armstrong, who, of course, is the conductor of the St. Olaf Choir, was mm-hmm. pictured up there. And I want to know, how long have you two been association in association together and have collaborated on projects together? Well, we've been best friends for about 33 years. Uh, I met wow. An- Anton when I went to the University of Illinois to start my doctoral program, and he started his master's program. And that's where we became uh, close friends. And we've done so many things together, including an instructional video called Body, Mind, Spirit, and Voice uh, that features the American Boy Choir and the Newark Boy Choir. And um, so we've we've collaborated um, many, many times. Uh, with the Heritage Festival, we've done concerts together in New York. And most recently, we were together together uh, uh, in collaboration for the Witness concert in um, Minneapolis, Minnesota, sponsored by Vocal Essence. Mm, with Philip Brunel. With Philip Brunel, yeah. Mm-hmm. That is so wonderful. I, when I look at the two of you, you two are like coral giants and certainly an inspiration for a lot of the young musicians, particularly the African-American musicians who are coming along who seek to direct music at this, this high level. So I personally want to say thank you for your, your rich contributions. Now tell me something. You've been at Florida State for 25 years. Um, could you talk about your first, talk about the major work that you conducted when you went to audition for the job? When I went to audition for the job, well, that was really interesting uh, because um, when I came into the audition, and actually it's been 27 years ago, it was 1984 when I came here. Wow. Um, I walked into the audition and I had to, uh, they were working on the St. John, so I had to take them through the St. John. And then in the conducting class, uh, I had to take, uh, these were, as a small, at that time the program was not nearly as large as it is now uh, in graduate uh, conductors, but I had to work with those uh, young people on Lenosa Stravinsky. So it was it was a wild baptism by fire, you know. <laughs> but uh, it was, it was, I'm sure. I and you were quite I got young. Here. Yeah, I oh, was. Oh, wow, you were quite yeah. young. Mm. Oh my goodness! Yeah, tell me. In, in addition to celebrating your your years at Florida State, you were recently honored with the Lifetime Achievement Award. Well, I got two awards this this um, spring, which sort of surprised me. The first is the Distinguished um, Service Award given by Course America, and uh, that was presented to me in San Francisco, uh, June twelfth, I believe. And it's award. It's an award that they don't give every year, um, but it is in celebration of the teaching, the contribution of the graduate students, the research, and the conducting, and uh, the the work. At least they think that I have done as far as uh, making cool music a global community around the world, and so they gave me that award. And then a week before that, I got from the. Uh, African um, Diaspora uh, a Living Legends Award, uh, 
and um, that group has long been uh, known for their work in looking at the, the spiritual, particularly the spiritual. And uh, of course, it you know Jester Harrison was always is always honored there, uh, mm-hmm. and that was that was meaningful because Albert McNeil was there and he conducted one of Jester's pieces, and and there were so many people there. Uh, Jacqueline Harrison, uh, a relative of Jester's, was there, also a composer. Um, David Hurd was there to uh, do his mm-hmm. music, so it was a it was a wonderful time. You know, and it's it's quite nice to have that moment when uh, your own people celebrate you, and that's not often. So that mm. was that was really heartfelt and meaningful for me. That's wonderful. And since you touched on the spiritual, talk to us a little bit about your book about the spiritual way over in Beulah Land. Well, the book uh, came about for several reasons. Um, I always get calls and emails and people saying, am I doing your music right? Or um, do you know this piece and where can I find this piece? And and I thought, okay, maybe it's now time to write a book specifically about understanding and performing this uh, this genre of music. And, uh, it, you know, my introduction to loving this music began with a, a long conversation I had with Jester Harrison when I was 16, you know, because I didn't like this music at all. Uh, I thought mm-hmm. it was, a, you know, a chance for white people to make fun of black people, you know. All we would, mm-hmm. you know, we would go into school and you sing, so we'll be done with the Tobias DeWeel, the Tobias DeWeel, you know, and I thought, we don't talk like that at home, you know. Why are we doing this music? And Jester took me at a very young age and told me about my ancestors and told me about you know their language and what sounds were present in the African dialects and what sounds were not present and what my ancestors did. And in a matter of a short time, he took a young kid who was embarrassed about his heritage to make a, a man who who's made his heritage his research interest for the rest of his life. So that's why the book sort of came about. I thought things needed to be explained. Uh, there are often times where arrangers are arranging arrangements, so I wanted to go back and show them where they can find earlier sources. You know, Slave Songs of 1867, that's pretty early since Emancipation's 1865. And uh, you can find some uh, where uh, the writers of this collection went from plantation to plantation, heard the slaves, and transcribed the earliest versions that they know. So this is not arrangements. It's just melody lines with text and dialect written in as best they could transcribe it, and melodies as best as they could could transcribe it. And then I have a very interest, uh, strong interest in the traditionalist composers, the early composers. Um, I felt very much that some of their music is going out of print, and I thought if I can do something to help bring some of that music back to print, um, it'll be my contribution. And so I list some five or 600 pieces in the back of spirituals, and the book has helped. Some of them have come back into print, so I'm pleased with that. I do a thorough discussion of five pieces, and then I uh, ask Anton Armstrong and Judith Willoughby to to reflect back on on uh, their ideas about some specific questions. 
I think what's interesting is to thumb through the book and see pictures of Eugene Simpson as a as a very young man and and pictures of uh Brazil Denard and Albert McNeil and, and Roy Wingwall or uh Alice Parker or you know, of course Jester and John Work and uh Boltner, to name a few. Eva Jesse. You know, and of course That's they, a wonderful connection there because Eugene Simpson, he actually conducted the choir at Virginia State University, my alma mater. Yeah. Yeah, he did. He's written a wonderful book on the uh, the music of Hall Johnson. So uh, that is that is one of quite a scholar and quite a musician he he is. Although he's wow, retired now, we still hear from him. <laughs> That's wonderful. I want to ask you a question on the flip side of what you're talking about. Sometimes we don't embrace our own. Just uh, a, a quick question. Um, have you ever been greeted by, say, an African-American core director? Uh, because when you talk about the spiritual, of course, at Florida State, you direct, I would assume that Florida State University, the choir is a majority Caucasian choir. Have you ever had an experience where uh, someone maybe challenged maybe the effectiveness of the rendering of any of your choirs as far as dialect or style is concerned? Well, I haven't had a direct challenge. And, of course, I'm in the great state of Florida, so my, my choirs <laughs> do have a little bit of color in them. Um, <laughs> uh, you can't quite be in Florida and ignore the color that is in the in the state. So, um, And uh, that also happens to be a part of, you know, when you teach at a school for a long time, you recruit and you recruit those students. Um, and they find a place uh, in your in your program. But I would say, wow. But I I remember quite clearly I was doing a community sing, and a woman came afterwards. They were interviewing me uh, for the newspaper. And she said, Dr. Thomas, I know you think spirituals are every fair thing. She said, I'm a St. Olaf graduate, and what do you think about our pristine choir trying to sing these songs? And she said, you know, they just sound uh, affected. And, And she said, do you think they have any business doing this music? And I my look at her, I looked at her and I said, well, ma'am, I said, what you then are doing is that you're limiting a person's experience. Are you thus telling me I cannot perform Bach because I'm black? Mm. Oh, no, oh, no, oh, no, I didn't mean that at all. I said, well, then they get to sing this music. <laughs> and that was wow. the end of that discussion. You know, and you know, as as far as you know, other black conductors saying, "Well, he didn't interpret this," or you know, that you face in music all the time. You know, and they'll say, "I want to do the authentic spiritual." Well, do they really want to do the authentic spiritual? Are they harkening back to the spiritual as it was performed by the historically black colleges in the early years? Are they harkening back to the sound of Dawson? Of work of of debt is that is is that what they're considering the authentic spiritual? I remember so clearly. Mr. Dawson said to me when Keep Your Lamps came out, he said, "Son, your music's okay, but it just don't have enough counterpoint in it." And I said, "Mr. Dawson, do you really believe the slaves were singing in fugue in the field?" He said, "Don't matter." And I said, "Okay." <laughs> And uh, so I, I will never forget, I was in Winston-Salem, and I was introducing a piece of mine called Rock in Jerusalem to the whole convention. Mm. And that piece is modeled uh, after Jester and him. And, of course, he didn't know that. So the beginning part starts with, I hear rocking in the land, and then the, co- the women come in, it's similar to how uh, Jester did in Elijah Rock. 
But the last two measures go into a lot of counterpoint. Rocking in the land, the land, rocking in the land. You know, it's also a couple of pages that go out of tune frequently. But I was conducting it, and I looked over, and all of a sudden I saw William Dawson there, and he had this big old grin on his face. And he came up, and he gave me a hug, and he said, Son, you know something? I said, What, sir? He said, That's a little better. So <laughs> when when people tell me about, you know, how authentic they're going to be, my first question is, what do you mean by authentic? Mm, that's, that's an important question. So, Dr. Thomas, how were you first introduced to music? Church. <laughs> my, 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 that's as simple as I can say it. It was just church. My mother raised me in Wichita, Kansas, as a single parent. And uh, I went to church. I came home. Um, I put on her choir robe, started banging on that toy piano, and that's how I played. And before long, at four, she was saying, that's what a fellowship is. And I said, yeah, you want to hear what a friend? And I banged along. <laughs> you know? And that was just it. You know, My ear was wide open, and um, I knew at that moment I would be waving my hands and playing on the piano someplace. And so that's how I was introduced to music. It was not her choice. She did not really want me to be a musician at all. Yeah, but she later learned to appreciate the fact that I was. That's that's great. Um, one thing I've noticed about you, Doctor Thomas, is the fact that you have an ability to to reach people cross sexually, whether it's race, gender, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Um, how did you develop that 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 sense of good people skills? Because you you, you come across where you're just very easy and relaxed. Were you always like that? No, like every other little guy, you're always frightened and scared. But I, I I would say that one of the things that happened very early in my career is that being very ambitious and wanting desperately to catch up to my big sister, you know. So I had to be in college by the time I was 16, you know. I started teaching when I was 20. And those first two years of teaching really helped to formulate a lot of things for me. Um I had taken over the choirs when I was 14 years old at my church, so it was a big mm. program. I had like 200 people in church choir, and uh, and so I had to learn how to deal with adults and adults who didn't necessarily respect any authority that I would have, but I was still in charge of this, being 14 years old. And so I learned people skills from the church, and then those boys that I had, I'm tough kids, my first two years of teaching, but... Mm. You know, if I could pay them, I should pay them because they taught me how to teach. They taught me how to not take myself so seriously. They taught me that if I was going to teach anybody anything, I had to get their attention first. And then they taught me, you know, when you teach, it's all about the people you're teaching, and it's not about you at all. And that sort of has, you know, I guess that's been the thing that's sort of embraced my whole career. Um it's kind of um, you, you teach because you love people. Uh, music just happens to be my vehicle. Mm, I think I'm going to quote that as my Facebook status. If you're going to teach anybody anything, you have to get their attention first. Yeah. Andre Thomas. I think I'm going to use that, Dr. Thomas. <laughs> Good luck. Now tell me something. You've had some great experiences with great conductors. I was reading the, the list. Talk to me about some of the, the earliest influences, such as Robert Shaw, the great conductor that you've worked with. 
Mr. Shaw, um, you know, was legendary before, you know, in my mind, before I ever met him. I met him briefly when I was teaching at the University of Texas, but then when I came to Florida State, he came every year, you know, um, after, well, in 1988, uh, Clayton Crabio, who was here, died. And Clayton, of course, had been his close friend and associate for many years, and so he would come every year to do something in memory of Clayton. And I, I got to work with him on a rather personal level. And I think uh, there were there were lots of things that he reminded me of that you can't skip steps and just jump to the glory of the product, the final product. You got a clean house, as he said, <laughs> as he would say. So that means notes and rhythms have to be accurate. Notes have to be correct, and the rhythms and and notes have to be in the right space and time. There's no getting around that. I had studied with Miss Hillis earlier at Northwestern, so I already knew about color coding and, and and phrasal analysis. But then that became more crucial as I looked at his scores. Um, and I would say almost every major work I've conducted in my life, he he said, "I'll let you have my score, so you can you know you can conduct from it and and, and learn from it." And that's probably what I learned the most about his discipline of doing that and his willingness to to go into the score. We were struggling once. Uh, it was the year we were doing uh, Stravinsky's Symphony of Psalms, and we were doing the three little uh, uh, motets that Stravinsky, a cappella motets that he wrote, and it was the Ave Maria. And we were in the hall, we were rehearsing, and it just wasn't going, you know. And so he dismissed us. He said, you know, there's something wrong. I need to go back into the score and study more. Uh, the next day we arrived in the hall. The hall was completely stripped bare and very, very hard. And he looked at the choir and he said, turn around, face the back wall, whenever you're ready, begin. And it was magical. He used the acoustics mm. to, to make that Ave Maria work. And then as soon as that they finished that last note, he hit the downbeat of the Symphony of Psalms and the choir turned around and whew, there it went. Well, we actually did that in performance. It shocked everybody. But, <laughs> but you know, it was like, where, where do you learn all of this? You know, this was a great mind who had associated with everyone from Poulenc to Hindemith. You know, we're talking about commissioning Hindemith for when lilacs bloom. We're talking about having conversations with Poulenc. Um, so that's, that's you know, that's a major influence. And as I said earlier, Miss Hillis, I cannot negate at all Harold Decker, who was my mentor teacher at the University of Illinois. Um, he taught me how to run a graduate program and how to deal with graduate students, and I wasn't sure I knew how to do that. There's still some days I'm not sure, but he he taught me that. you know. And then my undergraduate teacher at French University, uh, the inspiration and the enthusiasm for making music, you know, um, and and how you can you can grasp a group and grasp an audience with really earnest energy from that performance. I, mean, I learned that from Cecil Riney, and I could go on and on and on and on and on. <laughs> That's wonderful, Doctor Thomas. Um, I just read recently about a wonderful partnership that you've gone into with the well-known um, advocate for um, choral music, Chorus America, the, this recent commissioning project. Could you maybe touch on that? 
Well, <laughs> I haven't written it yet. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I can probably touch on. I I think that Chorus America is one of the organizations that I think uh, sometimes when you think you've done something right, uh, I think Chorus America can say they've done something right. This is an organization not just about performance. It's about the survival of choral singing in this country. It's an advocacy organization. It's an organization built to to put together managers and administrators and 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 give insight uh to survival in in the times that we live in today. And so this was just something small that I could do to help in that organization um from an artistic way. Um the people in that organization give in a way that I've never seen any group give for the survival of 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 w- the work of course America. So this commissioning project, they asked me, you know, I was like, oh no, you know, because a lot of people are quite prolific, and I'm not, uh, because I run a graduate program, <laughs> and I conduct nonstop all the time. So that didn't leave a whole lot of time for composition. If I can write one or two pieces a year generally one, I'm happy. So this year it means two, the commission for them, and it also means I have a commission for the 100th anniversary of the St. Olaf Choir, which is happening this year. And uh, for the Christmas festival, I'm writing something for them. So Mm. that's what I could say about that commission and that organization. So let me make sure I understand it. So is it that you're you're writing a piece and then select choirs are able to perform the piece and then the profits go back to Chorus America? Right. What will happen is um, normally in the commissioning process, you commission a piece from a composer. You pay X amount of dollars to that composer to write the piece for your group. Your group is generally the first group to perform the piece because it will be in manuscript. But what more importantly happens is if the piece goes to a printing, a publication, then the name of your choir is listed on the piece as the commission mm-hmm. commissioned by. And so, and so, rather than uh, the choirs or whoever bids for this commission um, paying me, that money will go to Chorus America to help fund them in their in their. Uh, their work. Um, now, when the piece is actually published, there won't be any more money coming. That money will come directly to me. That it'll be a published composition. Oh, that's 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 a catch twenty two. That's great. So tell me, Doctor Thomas, you really turned out some some great students at Florida State, and I'm and I'm proud to say that I know a few to call friends. I I recently read on Facebook that uh, Jeff is now Doctor Jeffrey Redding just got his doctorate yeah. degree. And then Edrin Coleman lives here in Washington D.C. And then my friend Tony McNeil. So I'm honored yeah. to know that they are they have all been. And the Tony's going to be presenting at the Southern Division, and that's exciting. Yes, it certainly is. Just in closing, what um, advice would you give to someone who aspires to be a great conductor of choral music? Well, I would say first of all, love choral music. <laughs> that's number one. <laughs> I mean, just love choral music. Number two, if you if you dislike people, 
you might want to do something different. Mm. You know, um, you know, if your personality tends to be a personality that you really, you know, people bother you and it's hard relating to people, uh, then perhaps being a concert pianist might be the best thing to do. Mm. If you can play. If you can play. You know, but if you if you if you love people, then you're going to do that. Um, you're going to. It's not necessarily that you become the world's best singer, but you must understand how the vocal instrument works. That means you're going to have to constantly study, and you're going to have to know some anatomy, physiology, and how to put those voices together, um, and how the instrument itself works. That's crucial. Um, you're going to have to study theory. I mean, I think. Choral conducting is where everything comes together, theory, music history. All of that comes together in one spot when you step on that podium because you will analyze and you will study historically where the piece comes from. You know, Then your ear training, your ears are crucial. Can you hear? Can you hear mistakes? Can you hear changes in balance and blend? All those things to come in the forefront. Then you got to deal with languages. You know, languages are a booger, but we sing in millions of them now. You know, you've mm. got to know what those rules are. you got to determine, are you going to do Austro-German? Are you going to do regular, I mean, uh, Austro-German Latin or Romanized Latin? You know, what do you do if you're doing this French piece? You know, okay, here are all, oh, here's some ends. Oh, those are nasals before that. Okay, I've got to make that, change that vowel. i got to know that. Because if you don't know that, somebody can say, now what do you want here in my diction class? I heard that, you know, <laughs> and you don't want anybody stopping your rehearsal for something like that. Yes, so. indeed. Well, Dr. Thomas, it's such an album to tell you. It's been an honor. I think the last time that I, I saw you was maybe about eight years ago in Richmond, Virginia, when there was a workshop, and I and I want to say that it was Reveille United Methodist. At any rate, it was so it was so good to see you there, and I just want to say thank you so much for having such a personable spirit. Well, you're welcome, my friend, and congratulations on your radio show. You know, this is. I think <laughs> what you're doing is neat. I it's, it's fantastic, and congratulations. Thank you so much, Doctor Thomas. Have a great afternoon. And you too. Take care. Okay. Bye bye.